Well, this Sunday, as we sort of look ahead to a new year, I decided since it's, a, it's kind of a, we call it a freebie in the, in the office, I don't know why, it's not part of a series, I sort of get to choose, and I decided I'd like to try and talk about this morning what I think of as one of the most significant challenges facing the church in America, uh, and maybe in the West more broadly. Uh, And that is, I think that we are increasingly facing what I would call a crisis of credibility. And I want to say from the beginning that I think it's worth acknowledging that at least part of that is undeserved. It's unfair. Okay, so some of the cynicism and hostility that comes our way uh, is, is not our fault and it's nothing to do with us. Uh, some of it is, in fact, just, I think, the anger of those, that those who have believed a lie feel for those who are walking in the truth. So, so some of this credibility crisis, not our fault. But I think we also need to admit to ourselves that part of the crisis and credibility that faces the church is all too fair. The church, generally speaking, has earned it in a number of ways. We have earned it by living in ways that undermine our message. Uh, We have earned it by allowing ourselves to be co-opted by political ideologies and philosophies on the left and on the right. We've earned it uh, by being indistinguishable from others around us in the way that we respond to our circumstances and the world around us. And in response to all of these things, those who do not yet know Jesus are perhaps understandably skeptical when we then want to turn around and proclaim the gospel to them. So that brings me to my question this morning, a question I think that confronts all of us and that confronts us as a church as well, and that's this. How do we as the church, but, but first free in particular, how do we make sure that we are credible witnesses to the gospel in a world that is disillusioned, with religion, with the church in general, and sometimes with us. How can we, imperfect people that we are, be credible messengers of the gospel in an increasingly disillusioned age? Well, before we get to that, I want to start with the good news. I want to be hopeful this morning. And the good news uh, is, is this. God designed it this way. He did. His plan, all along, was for sinful but redeemed people, filled with his spirit, to be the messengers of his kingdom. And that's, that should bring you a great deal of comfort and relief. It does for me. I, look, from time to time, I worry about this plan. Uh, I worry that maybe it's not going so well. But in the end, I trust in God and in the wisdom of his plan. And God's plan is this, that we would earn credibility as his messengers By embodying the message that we proclaim. By embodying the message that we proclaim. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I like that word, embodying, but what I mean is simply this. That we would live as though we believe the things that we tell each other and the people outside the church. Or, as we put it in our, our church's extraordinary norms, we want to make sure that our lives are shaped by God's story. And this morning, I want to offer three ways that I think we are called to embody the gospel. There's many more, but I picked three. And there are three ways, three things that I think if we do them, 
uh, not only makes us obedient, not only makes us embodiers of the gospel, but will also make us credible witnesses in a disillusioned age. All right, so number one, first, we need to be quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and quick to repent. See how I cheated there? I got three points all in one point, so I was proud of that. Uh, Now, when I say quick, I'm not trying to trivialize any of these things. I'm not saying that they should be thoughtless or empty routine, none of that. What I mean by that is that this should be the obvious, natural response to sin in our own lives or in our own community, if we believe what we proclaim. So here's what I have in mind when I say that. I have in mind 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us of all unrighteousness. I have in mind uh, Romans uh, 8.1, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what I simply mean this morning, what I'm trying to get at is this. What, it would, it, what would it mean to embody those truths? Or let me ask it another way. This, I think, is a helpful way to think about it this morning. What would an, how would an outside observer, someone outside the faith, how would they expect us to live if we actually believed the truths in those verses? Well, I think it would look something like this. I believe, if I believe that God is always faithful to forgive us, if in fact we believe that we've already been forgiven in Christ, you would think that we would find it easier to confess when we have sinned and fallen short. After all, we don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to throw us out, whether he's going to deny us forgiveness. We already have been forgiven. He's promised to forgive us. He is faithful and just. More than that, we should be almost eager because we of all people understand the damage that sin can do. And God has promised if we will confess that sin and repent, he will purify us of unrighteousness. I mean, those are tremendous promises. They're incredible guarantees. And if we believe them, we of all people should be quick to apologize, quick to repent, and quick to forgive in our turn. You know, there's another group, I think, that faces a very real credibility crisis, uh, and that is football players, coaches, and fans. And if you don't believe, I mean, if you're, if you're married or related to someone who falls into any of those categories, you know this is true. Uh, because if there is a bad call during a game that goes against our team, we're outraged, right? We yell and scream. We, we take to Twitter. You can't get us to be quiet about it. This, this is unbelievable. How can they let this stand? But if the same bad call should benefit our team, we are suspiciously silent. No objection all of a sudden. I mean, hey, that's just how the game goes, okay? If you don't like it, maybe you shouldn't play. Maybe you shouldn't be a coach or a fan. That's why something that happened a couple weeks ago, and I know this is going to sound trivial to you maybe, but, but I found it incredible. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh, who's the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, he was, he's at the end of this game. They're playing the Denver Broncos. They're down by like five points or something. Almost no time left. 
Uh, they run a play, it's like backyard football. He hits his favorite target, Travis Kelsey, wide open over the middle. Kelsey catches the ball, and right before he's tackled, he turns and laterals it. He, you're allowed to throw it backwards. So he throws it backwards to another player on his team. No one's over there. He runs in for a touchdown. The Chiefs win the game. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible play. It's an unbelievable highlight. What an ending. There's only one problem. Flag on the play. And the refs come out and they say, uh, sorry to tell you, one of your guys lined up offsides. Play's coming back. It's the kind of play you can really only run one time. Uh, they don't succeed. They don't score. They lose the game. And afterwards, Mahomes is livid, right? He just can't believe they would take away this unbelievable play. You know, the refs are ruining the game. They're trying to be the stars of the game. It's outrageous. The NFL has to do something about this. But then, something totally unexpected, something that you never see happen in our public life anymore. You don't see it from, from, from uh, athletes or coaches. You seldom see it from uh, prominent uh, celebrities, you never see it from politicians. What happened is this. Mahomes went home, he watched the film, and he realized, oh man, my teammate was offsides. <laughs> the call was correct. And so he, he did something amazing. He very publicly and right away came out and said, hey, I, I'm sorry, everyone. I, I, wa I went back, I watched it. I was wrong. That was the correct call. They were right to call it. And they were right to call that play back. And, he's, and he said, I'm sorry for the way I talked about the officials. I was wrong to do that. And I will accept whatever punishment the NFL sees fit to give me. Now, let's be realistic here. I don't think he converted any Broncos fans into Chargers fans by doing that. All right? But I'll tell you what he did do. He gave himself credibility. In the future, when he has a complaint, when there's something he objects to, everyone is going to have to take him a little more seriously than the average player or coach. Not because he was perfect, not because he never gets it wrong, almost the opposite. Because when he got it wrong, he admitted it. Friends, the gospel we proclaim is a gospel of grace and forgiveness. If we want to be credible witnesses to that message, we don't need to be perfect. We just need to live like people who believe it. It means we need to be quick to apologize, to admit when we were wrong, quick to repent. And when we're on the other side of that, knowing that we have been forgiven so much, we too should be quick to forgive. And again, we can be realistic. That's not going to guarantee that people are then going to believe the message about Jesus when you share it with them. But it does mean that they will see that you believe it. And that will make us harder to dismiss. It will make us credible witnesses. And hopefully, it will earn us more opportunities to point others toward Jesus. All right, so first, if we want to be credible witnesses to the gospel, we ought to be quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and quick to repent. Second, if we want to be credible witnesses, our lives should provide obvious evidence of transformation. Uh, transformation 
is fundamental to the gospel message. Uh, There is no way to accurately describe the gift of God in Christ correctly without it. It's embedded into the way we talk about the gospel. I mean, just think about, think about all the ways we talk about being saved, right? Uh, we are slaves set free from the power of sin. We are a new creation. We are made alive in Christ. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're a new humanity made after the pattern of Christ. Or maybe most simply, we are born again. So here's my point. If all of this business about transformation is actually true if we actually believed it, then what would an outside observer expect to see in our lives? They would expect to see some obvious and clear evidence of that transformation. And for the record, the New Testament would agree. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 5, 19 to 23. Right in the church of Galatia, Paul says this. He says, look, the acts of the flesh are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now these verses come near the end of this letter. And Paul closes the letter by reminding the church in Galatia that in Christ they have received freedom from sin. They have received the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that he expects their lives to reflect that transformation. And for Paul, that means two basic things. Number one, stop living like you are still slaves to sin in the flesh. That's what verses 19 to 21 are about. And number two, start living like people set free by the victory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what verses 22 and 23 are about. Because if they have actually been set free from sin, if they actually have the Holy Spirit, then their lives should reflect that transformation. Again, we're not talking about perfection, but just clear evidence that God is at work. We're talking about all those things we listed, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control showing up in our lives in increasing measure. Now again, Just because those things are there, it's no guarantee that then when you share the good news about Christ that people are going to believe it. But it does provide evidence that becomes increasingly hard to dismiss. It reveals us to be credible witnesses. In John chapter 9, Jesus comes across a a man who is blind from birth and he heals him. He gives him sight. Uh, The man who is just been the recipient of this unbelievable miracle who must just be overjoyed. I mean, it's, it's something literally I, I can't imagine uh, to, to be blind from birth and all of a sudden in a moment he can see, uh, you know, he's, he's celebrating, right? And, and he, this is, these are small communities. Everyone recognizes this guy. And so everyone is understandably uh, thrown into this, this tizzy, right? 
Because they all know that he's blind, and here he is walking around, and he has sight. And everyone wants to know, wait a minute, how did this happen? Right? And he tells them, this guy, Jesus, just healed me. Seemed like it was no problem for him. Uh, Well, this eventually draws enough attention uh, that the Pharisees uh, show up to investigate. Uh, they don't like all this excitement. They don't, they're, they're suspicious about what's happened here. So they drag this guy before him. It's got to be bizarre for him. I mean, he's in you know, maybe the, the happiest moment of his life, and now he's being interrogated uh, as though this is somehow a problem because the healing happened on the Sabbath. And you've got to think about this. Put yourself in his shoes, all right? He, 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 here he is now. He's being called as a witness in, one of the, in front of one of the most hostile audiences, Uh, to Pharisees, to people who have already decided, and the passage says this, they've already decided that Jesus is absolutely not who he claims to be. He is not the Messiah. He is not a prophet. He is a sinner and a deceiver. That's what they think. And neither this man's restored sight, nor his testimony, nor even his parents' testimony. They drag his parents in front of them. They go, are you sure this is your son? And his parents are like, "We're, we're pretty sure. Thanks for asking. Are you sure he was blind? Yes, I think we would have noticed if we'd gotten that one wrong. Blindness, one of the more easy things to diagnose, right? So none of this changes their minds. But one thing becomes increasingly clear as the story goes on, and it's this. This man has been fundamentally, profoundly transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And it's the combination of his transformation and his testimony that makes him impossible to ignore. The Pharisees all but beg him to stop giving Jesus credit. And he says, look, I don't know who he is. Maybe he's a sinner. Maybe he's the Messiah. All I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus is the one who did it. I think in this way, we are all just like this man who had his sight restored. We are, we are, by our own lives, either going to make the gospel harder to believe or easier to believe. Look, when a blind man can all of a sudden see and he tells you that Jesus did it, I guess you can still deny that Jesus is the Messiah, but man, does that combination of testimony and transformation make that denial harder. Look, I know others today, you know people today who find the gospel very difficult to believe. They find it very hard to believe. But I will promise you this. When we are able to match our transformed lives with our testimony about the Savior who did it, we will make the gospel easier to believe and harder to dismiss. That's what it is to be a credible witness. All right, so, so far, we've got two examples of embodying the gospel. First, we should be quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and quick to repent. And second, our lives should provide clear and obvious evidence of transformation. Brings me to my third and final example this morning. As those who believe that Jesus is God's Messiah the savior of the world who frees us from sin and death and reconciles us to God, we should, in what we say and do, point clearly and consistently to Jesus. 
Look, we're just leaving Advent season, and we've celebrated and recounted the good news about Jesus, that he was God with us, that he brought hope and salvation to the entire world, that he brought victory over sin and death. My argument this morning is simply this. Any outside observer who heard this message and who thought that we believed it would expect us to be eager to share that message with others. I mean, after all, if you had your life saved, redeemed, and transformed by Jesus, I would expect, you, I would expect to hear you sing his praises. Anytime I think of this, I think of John the Baptist. Uh, when, when Jesus shows up to begin his, his public ministry, John's public ministry is at his peak, all right? He's drawing the largest crowd, he, crowds he's ever drawn. Uh, there are people streaming out to him, out into the desert to be baptized. Uh, his message is gaining traction. He's come to the attention of King Herod. Um, his ministry's at his peak, and it'd be understandable if John, experiencing this public attention and popularity, would have wanted to, to hold on to, to cling to his disciples and to all these people who showed up to hear him and to hear what he had to say. And yet when Jesus shows up, John doesn't hesitate. He points right at Jesus and he says to his own disciples, to the, to the people who wanted to follow him, he says, no, 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 this is the Messiah. He must become greater. I must become less. Every time I read that, every time I think, uh, think about that, I think, I don't know, all Christians, we should have that stamped somewhere, okay? Uh, maybe on our forehead, or maybe better, we should all have it stamped on our ego. He must become greater. We must become less. If Jesus is who, he, who we say he is, that should be our attitude. And John is a beautiful example of it. But so too is the Apostle Paul. I think about Paul. Uh, he encounters Jesus on the road, and Jesus in an instant turns his life upside down, saves him, redeems him, certainly transforms him. And from that moment forward, you cannot shut Paul up. You can't do it. You can't stop him, no matter what you do, from pointing clearly, consistently, and loudly to Jesus Christ. Beatings don't do it. Imprisonment doesn't do it. Shipwreck doesn't do it. Running him out of town. I mean, literally, getting a mob together and running him out of town doesn't do it. Even, really, when I thought about it, even execution didn't do it. I bet they thought it would do it. Didn't do it. It stopped his mouth, but it didn't stop his voice. I mean, here, 2,000 years later, every time you read one of the letters Paul has written, what does it do for you? It points you clearly and consistently to Jesus Christ. Peter and John, one more example. Acts chapter 4. They, uh, they're just on their way, they're walking, they encounter a guy who's crippled and he is begging for alms. And they say, hey, sorry, we have no money. But we do have, we gladly give you. Get up and walk. And the guy can't believe it, right? You know the children's song? He, he goes away running and jumping and praising God. But once again, just like the healing of the blind man, this draws a lot of attention. Again, small community. Everyone recognizes him and everyone goes, wait a minute. 
You're, you're the guy who, who was crippled, who couldn't stand, let alone walk and run and jump. What, what happened here? And he, he, he can't help but tell them, right? So, but again, the synagogue hears about this. They're unhappy. They drag, they, actually, they throw Peter and John in prison first. Then they drag them before the synagogue. And what you notice, if you read the whole story, I mean, it's striking. I, I, don't take my word for it. Look at Acts chapter 4 sometime today, sometime this week, and just start counting how often Peter and John deflect attention to Jesus. Uh, every step along the way, when the witnesses to the, to the healing, so the people who are right there when the healing happens, they're amazed. And they, understandably, they look at Peter and John, they go, wow, how'd you guys do that? And they go, no, 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 we didn't do anything. That's the power of Jesus you just saw, right? Right away, they point to Jesus. When they're dragged before the Sanhedrin and they ask them, by what power, what authority were you able to do this? Peter says, by the power and authority of Jesus the Messiah, what else? When they tell them, when they, you know, they eventually they investigate, they talk amongst themselves, they come back to Peter and John, they say, let's make a deal. We will release you, we'll let you go, but there's one condition. Stop talking about Jesus already. And Peter and John refuse. They say, can't do it. Uh, and by the way, they refuse knowing full well what the possible consequences might be. Back in prison, beatings, or possibly even worse. But they just look at him and they say, listen, you do what you have to do, but as for us, they say, we cannot, we cannot help but to speak of what we have seen and heard. That's what I mean by pointing to Jesus. That's what it means to be a witness. If we believe all that we say and do about Jesus, and more to the point, if we ourselves have actually been saved and redeemed and transformed by him, by his life and his power, then we should look and sound like John and Peter. We should not be able to stop ourselves from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Every day, as we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, we should think, like John the Baptist, man, he has to become greater, I have to become less. What other possible response is there to what Jesus has done for us? Now, I'll say it one more time. People still may not believe us, but they will, I promise you, find us credible if that's how we live. And they'll find us much harder to ignore. Look, as we close this morning, I want to acknowledge one more time, and, and I don't want to diminish it, we do face some significant challenges as we seek to bear witness to Jesus in our world today. Some are external. Uh, they're nothing to do with us. They're changes in culture. They're alternative worldviews. They're going to make things harder. Some of these challenges are internal. They're scandals within the church that undermine our message. They're our own personal continued struggles with sin. But even considering all of those things, I remain and we should all remain profoundly hopeful. And I want to close just by reminding us why. First, yes, we do face challenges. We do. Some are very significant. But I would just remind us that bearing witness to Jesus as Lord and Savior under the Roman Empire was no cakewalk either. And yet, as the New Testament testifies, as history itself testifies, 
the gospel nevertheless found fertile soil in every corner of the empire and even beyond, even beyond. Sometimes the resistance to that message was fierce. Sometimes it was openly violent. And yet God built his church through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the testimony of flawed but redeemed people exactly like us. And he will do the same in our day and in our city and in our country. The only question is whether or not we want to be a part of it, whether we want to bear witness to him or not. God will build his church. Second, remember too, and and this struck me this week, it's always good to be reminded, the, the gospel is not just any message, okay? It, it has an almost mysterious power all its own. Uh, Romans 1.16 says it best. I love this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes. Why? Because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I mean, think about that for a second. It's a verse you've probably heard, but think about what Paul is saying. And again, if anyone would know, if anyone would know, it would be Paul. I mean, proclaiming this message in, in all over the Mediterranean world in places where it must have sounded crazy. And yet, Paul says, I've seen it over and over and over again. This message has power. This message, this message and this message alone is the power of God. For salvation. So don't be ashamed and don't be intimidated. This message is God's instrument. It's the means by which we are saved, but means by which anyone, everyone is saved. Finally, as we've seen today, and, and I, this is the point I would like to drive home, that message paired with a life that embodies it paired with a life that embodies it, is very hard to dismiss and easy to believe. And the more our lives together, uh, so our lives individually, but also our life together as a church, embodies that gospel, the harder and harder it becomes for other people to write us off, the harder it is for them to dismiss us, and the easier it is for them to believe. So with that in mind, I'd encourage you, kind of as we start to wrap things up here, just to think about the three examples I brought up this morning. I don't know, maybe, maybe one of those resonated with you a little bit more than the others. Maybe you heard one of those and you felt God nudge you a little bit. And you thought, you know what, that's, that's an area where, where I want to commit myself to embodying the gospel better. Maybe it's, maybe it's going to be on that being quick to apologize. Maybe it's the forgiveness end. Uh, I don't know. Um, Whatever it is, I would encourage you, pay attention to what God might be speaking to you this morning through his word and be encouraged. Again, we don't need to be perfect. Uh, Credibility doesn't require perfection, but does require authenticity. And when people see us living in a way that makes sense, given what we proclaim, we become credible witnesses to the gospel. We become harder to dismiss and easier to believe. 
No matter what the challenges we face, no matter what's going on in our world, internal to the church, external to the church, we will always be credible and effective witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom when our lives are an example of the message that we proclaim. Will you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to close this morning by giving thanks to you for the, for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus. And Lord, we celebrate together, uh, and it's appropriate that we do it together, that, that it, is, it is by this gospel and this gospel alone that we have been saved. It is by faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior alone that anyone is saved. God, we thank you for the good, good news of that message profoundly good news to all who, who hear it. And God, I pray that you would help us, uh, that, that your spirit would empower us as we strive to, be, to embody that message, to live in a way that is appropriate for those who have received such a great hope and such good news. And I pray, Father, that, that as our lives reflect that genuine transformation that comes through your saving power, that we might also be bold and clear witnesses to the truth. And I pray, Lord, that that combination, that our, that our transformation and our testimony uh, might be a powerful and effective witness for you as you build your church. In your name we pray, amen.